the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Company and other factors. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth it shall not return unto me void but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Isaiah, the 55th chapter, verses 11, 10 and 11. The word of God will not return void. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. 
We know that the word that's spoken here will not return void, but will produce what God desires to have produced in the city of Washington. And we know that that is revival, holiness. We know that whatever the word of God says to us, however he has said it, whether it's to go to a specific job or talk to a very specific person or whatever the action steps are that the word of God tells us to take, we know that it will not return to us void. It will not return to Jesus void, but will produce the result he desires. Always when the word of God comes, however, it comes to win the lost, to turn men and women from darkness to light. Never will the word of God come to do, say, a secular job or any job without having as the primary purpose the salvation of the lost, for his heart is called the gospel commission. Jesus came and died to win the lost, to destroy the works of the devil. So don't think you're doing the will of God by simply going out and earning money. You are called to witness for Jesus Christ. Oh, but pastor, I might get fired. Yes, you might. Expect persecutions when you follow Jesus. Oh, I might lose business. Expect persecutions when you follow Jesus. But you can also expect to see the lost and the dying brought to the feet of Jesus. That's what we're all about. After the broadcast yesterday, my sweetheart, Alexandra, she asked me, how did you decide to do radio? Did God speak to you? Well, he'd spoken to me many times about radio, but we'd been off air for some time, and I believed the Holy Spirit was calling me to go back on the radio. I went to see a station manager of a local station here in Washington. It was not Weva. It was a station owned by two Jewish men who ran it as a business. I knew that going in. I sat down with the manager and I said, do you have any time slots available? I would like to begin doing a radio broadcast. He asked what my experience was in broadcasting and I shared that with him. I had started in radio broadcasting when I was in college on WGTS-FM. I did a half-hour broadcast every Friday evening. That's where I began to learn the power of the radio medium. He said, well, do you have the money? I said, no, I don't have any money. He said, well, pastor, a little bit exasperated with me, this is a business. You have to pay for airtime. You have to buy that time. I can't just give you airtime. I said, yes, I know. But do you have time available? Yes, I have, a, I have an availability. I said, okay, thank you. Now I'll go pray. And so my late wife and I went and began to pray. It was several weeks later when my mother had to go into the hospital for surgery. 
we were on our way to the hospital to meet her and pray with her before she went into surgery. A lady was also on her way to that same hospital, Holy Cross, and she was driving with double cataracts and she was on her way to the hospital for cataract surgery. She was blind, almost completely blind. She ran the red light. She ran the back side of our car, the passenger side, totally caved in that back door, but the car was still drivable. So we collected insurance information and sent that information, and soon a check came back. It was just enough to pay for the first month of radio. I said, Lord, do you want me to buy radio time with this check and drive around with a car in this condition? Yes, pay for radio. I said, okay, Lord. So I went back to the station manager. He was surprised to see me, but I said to him, do you still have that time available? Yes, I do. Okay, I have the money. Let's schedule it. He said, well, how much money do you have? And I told him it was enough to cover one month. He said, Pastor, exasperated again, you can't go on the radio with just one month. Listeners will not support the radio for maybe two years. So you have to have a minimum of one year of radio. T I said, wait a minute, didn't you say that if I brought the money to pay for the month of radio, you would put me on the air? Yes, I did say that. Well, let's go. There's no problem. I have one month. You're going to shame the National Prayer Chapel, Pastor. You don't understand. Money doesn't grow on trees. I said, no, money comes from Jesus. He sent this money. He didn't ask how it came. And I didn't tell him. So it was scheduled, and I went on air. Toward the end of the month, I was utterly hopeless because there was no money coming in. Nothing was available. And then a call came and it said, Pastor, I'd like to donate a sewing machine to the radio broadcast to help pay for next month. I said, thank you. I got her name and address and I said to my wife, a stupid sewing machine? What is God doing? I was so upset. I was so exasperated. She said, just calm down, Ray. Let's go see this lady. So we went and saw her, and sure enough, she gave us a sewing machine. It was computerized. It was a very expensive and excellent machine. She gave it to us, so we took it to a sew-and-back place that we knew about. And as we walked in and showed the manager, he began to laugh. And he said, you know what? A lady was just here asking us if we had this machine. Why don't you just call her and go directly and sell her this machine? I said, how much will she pay? Well, she said she would pay this amount. It was the exact amount for the next month's radio bill. We went to see her in Damascus, Maryland. She gave us a check and we gave her that excellent sewing machine. It was no longer a stupid machine to me. It was a fine machine. Oh, how we learn. So that paid for the next month.
as we were coming to the end of that month, there was still no money for the radio. And one of the members of a small prayer group that I was meeting with said to me, Pastor, you know my husband died some time ago and he was very much into tools. So I have a jigsaw, I have, and she named all of the different pieces of equipment she had. She said, I want to donate it all to the to the National Prayer Chapel and I want you to do a, a sale, a garage sale, and use the money for radio. So we got a U-Haul truck and we hauled all of it over to my house and we did a yard sale that Saturday. Everything sold and at the end of the day we had just enough money for another month of radio. God carried us. It was clearly a divine intervention with the car accident, with the sewing machine, and with the gift of this equipment. And from then on, radio, miraculously, by God's grace, has been paid every month, including last month, August. God did it. He called me to do radio. He paid for it. One of the principles we've learned is that God always pays for what he orders. And now he's saying, wait on me. And Alexandra, yesterday you said, well, we are waiting, but we're doing more than waiting. Yes, we're doing this radio broadcast. So I just wanted, I asked if you would share that today because... Yesterday we shared Jackie Pullinger's story of how she came to Hong Kong. She's been there for over 50 years now. She's still ministering today. But the story of how she came is still very relevant and very inspiring. And so even though Pastor Ray's been on the radio now for quite some time, with only a few interruptions, but decades in the Washington metro area, I thought that it was worth sharing with you that this isn't an isolated incident that we're sharing about Jackie Pullinger. This is just how God does things. So if he has called you to take certain actions, you can trust him that he will open the way for you, even if it seems impossible or if the way seems strange, like driving around with a beat-up car and then using the insurance money for radio. So we praise God that even though we are waiting in many respects, that he has still granted us this radio broadcast and that so many of you have written us kind, encouraging notes saying how you've been blessed or how others you know have been blessed by this broadcast. That's very encouraging to us and we thank you so much for that. And our prayer is that God will use each one of you to begin revival there's so many there's such a diversity of listeners to this broadcast and each of you are in a very unique position where god could use you to reach people where i couldn't reach them or where somebody else couldn't reach them because we're each strategically placed in a different area and i would love to see each of you baptized in the holy spirit and taught by the holy spirit just as we'll see Jackie Pullinger was, she came with no training, 
no missionary training. She'd never gone to seminary. And the Holy Spirit just taught her step by step how to minister to the drug addicts, how to set up homes, how people were to be to enter into the homes, how long they needed to stay, how to have discipline in those homes. Um, so that is true for each of us. Each of you is in a unique position where I'm eager for you to receive the power and to walk in obedience to the direction God is giving you and see what God will do with you. And I pray that the rest of your life will be one fruitful ministry for the Lord Jesus so that when you enter heaven, you have many spiritual children who will go with you, who will rejoice with you forever as your fellow saints in glory. And you'll know that by the power of the Spirit, you helped them get there. And you know what? The story still isn't finished. I'm still driving a 19... 1996. 1996 Toyota that's currently broken down sitting in my driveway and I can't drive it. So I've been praying about that car and I'm trusting Jesus. I'm waiting on him in many areas. But I want to say again before we go to the story of chasing the dragon, it's vital that we understand that on one side is piety, righteousness, living clean before God. And the other side is doing the work of God in the gospel commission, sharing the good news with others. At the job, wherever we are, the primary purpose of our lives is not to make money. It's to win the loss to Jesus. That's the call of God. That's the command of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all things. That's what we're called to, and it's exciting. It's alive with joy and with peace, and God provides. We've watched in the last 30 days as God stepped into many of your hearts and you gave so generously to cover this August radio broadcast. I mean, it was, it was, when we include the cost of the internet to do the streaming video for you, it was over $4,000 last month. And we just say, Jesus, thank you. He did it. So there is purity on one side, and there is then walking out what Jesus calls us to do. So we're waiting on Jesus, but while we're waiting on Jesus, we're doing the radio. We are saying what he gives us to say. And in our prayer time, before we came on the air today, we said, Lord, give us the words to speak. Let them be from your mouth. Quicken them by the power of your Holy Spirit. We want you for Jesus. We are jealous for you, for Jesus Christ. So let's go to the story, Chasing the Dragon. Yes, we're reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. One woman's struggle against the darkness of Hong Kong's drug dens. Her ministry is called St. Stephen's Society. You can find it on the web. 
and you could even volunteer, but they require a minimum of a two-year commitment unless you're doing a gap year program. So we'll begin reading. The walled city is guarded day and night by a ceaseless army of watchers. As soon as a stranger approaches, the watchers pass the word. Their flip-flops flapping, the boys run between the noodle stalls, through doorways, across narrow alleys, and up staircases. Grass Sandal whispers to Red Bamboo Pole, who respectfully communicates the news to Golden Paw. The leaders of the crime syndicate have colorful names, but their activities are sordid. To strangers, the real business of the walled city is invisible. Doors close, shutters clang shut, jaw sticks camouflage the strange, pungent smell of opium. One name for the walled city in Chinese is Haknam. In English, darkness. As I began to know it better, I learned how true this name was. The walled city was a place of terrible darkness, both physical and spiritual. Journalists get good copy out of it, but when you meet the men and women who have to live and suffer in such a place, you can be broken by compassion. I had thought I was going to one of those Chinese walled villages in the guidebooks, sort of quaint but poor. Mrs. Donathorne had invited me to visit her nursery school and church, but she had not prepared me for what I was to see. We got a lift as far as Tung Tao Chuen Road on the edge of the city. The street was lined with countless dentist parlors, which were equipped with ancient and modern drilling equipment, their windows filled with gold and silver teeth. There were teeth in bottles, teeth on velvet cushions, teeth even on the tips of big whirring fans. This was the street of the illegal dentists. Illegal because none of the amateur mouth doctors is allowed to practice in Hong Kong proper. Behind these tawdry shops rose the ramshackle skyscrapers of the walled city. It seemed impossible to find a way in. But the frail old lady, who was my guide, knew exactly where to go. We squeezed through a narrow gap between the shops and started walking down a slime-covered passageway. I will never forget the darkness and the smell, a fetid smell of rotten foodstuffs, excrement, offal, and general rubbish. The darkness was startling after the glaring sunlight outside. As we walked on between the houses, their projecting upper stories almost touched each other above us, so that only occasionally would the daylight penetrate in strong shafts of brightness among the shadows. I felt like I was in an underground tunnel. As we went, my guide gave me a running commentary. On my right was a plastic flower factory. On my left, an old prostitute who was too old and ugly to get work. So instead, the prostitute employed several child prostitutes to work for her. One seemed mentally retarded. Another was a child she had bought as a baby and brought up to take over the bread earner's role when she grew too old. 
they had plenty of customers. In that depraved street, the ownership of child prostitutes was regarded as a good source of income. Auntie Donnie told me to keep my head down in case someone chose to empty his chamber pot as we were passing below. Next, we reached the door to the illegal dog restaurant where the captured beasts were flayed to death to provide tender dog steaks. Then we came upon the pornographic film show house, a crowded lean-to shed. There was legitimate business, too. Workmen carrying loads of freshly mixed cement on their heads hurried down the alleys. Women clutching huge sacks of plastic flowers staggered out from tiny workrooms, where the clank of plastic pressing machines never ceased. There was no Sabbath day of rest here. Five days holiday, holiday a year was considered quite sufficient. Whole families were involved in keeping the plastic presses running day and night. For Chinese children, when they were not studying, the duty to work all hours for their parents was paramount. How can such a place exist inside the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong? Over 80 years ago, when Britain apportioned to herself not only the Chinese island of Hong Kong, but also the mainland peninsula of Kowloon and the Chinese territories behind it, one exception was made. The old walled village of Kowloon was to remain under Chinese imperial administration complete with its own Mandarin magistrate administering Chinese law. Later, however, the British traders complained and the concession was unilaterally withdrawn. The Chinese magistrate died. He was never succeeded by either Chinese or British and lawlessness inside the walled city came to stay. The city became a haven for gold smuggling drug smuggling, illegal gambling dens, and every kind of vice. The confusion over its ownership meant that the police could not enforce the law, and indeed would not even enter the infamous city. Even today, they go in large groups if they are hunting particular criminals, and usually the man they want effectively disappears into its alleyways. The area was large in population, small in size. A mere six acres sheltered 30,000 people, or double that. No census has ever found the true number. The housing was appalling. No building regulations could be enforced, so crazy angled apartment blocks without sanitation, water, or lighting straddled the streets. A maze of tangled wires was graphic evidence of the fact that their electricity was tapped from the public supplies outside the walled city. But you cannot steal sanitation, so excrement had to be emptied into the stinking alleys below. At street level, there were two toilets for all 30,000 people. The toilets consist of two holes of overflowing, crawling cesspools, one for men, one for women. It seemed unlikely that a place like the walled city would have schools and churches, 
But in this appalling place where children were born and brought up, Mrs. Donathorne had found premises and begun a general primary school. The teachers were not properly qualified, but they had attended secondary school to fourth or fifth form level. The school was small, but it had morning and afternoon shifts and taught several hundred pupils. On the very first day that I visited the school, Auntie Donnie asked me to teach there. Without thinking, I said yes, and she immediately said, how often? Before I had fully realized what I was getting myself into, I had agreed to teach percussion band, singing, and English conversation three afternoons a week. I soon found the Chinese education system to be so miscast that very often the brightest got fed up and dropped out. The system demanded that you learn all your lessons by heart. Every month, every term, and every year, there were exams. Should a child fail annual exams, he or she had to repeat the whole of the year's lessons. It was not unusual to come across children who had taken the primary one exam at the end of their first year no less than three times. I formed a theory that it was the bright ones who got bored with the system and jumped off the ladder while the duller ones climbed up. Percussion band and singing are not too difficult to teach even if there is little or no conversation. However, when it came to teaching English conversation, I was a complete failure. All the teaching in the school was highly regimented. I would read out, John and Mary went into the wood, and the students would repeat after, after me in unison, John and Mary, it came out, merely, went into the wood, without comprehension. Traditionally, understanding in Chinese education is not held to be important, but learning is considered vital, and they all learn to repeat what the teacher says like machines. My attempts to enliven their stories by acting out what was happening were completely misunderstood. We had a classroom riot every time. No one had ever tried to teach them to, to participate in stories and dramatic ideas. The freedom that I tried to show them resulted in classroom anarchy within a matter of minutes. So I sadly went back to reading out sentences from the book, The Sure Way to Maintain Calm. Once a week, one of the classrooms was converted into a church for Sunday night services. So Miss Poon, I now proudly had a Chinese name, played the harmonium. That meant pedaling it 50 mile per hour or so to produce an accompaniment that would be heard against the singing. Otherwise, having started at a particular note, they would continue to sing in that key quite regardless of the one I was playing in. I usually just gave in and joined them. Mostly the worshipers were older Chinese women, some with babies wrapped tightly to their backs, and I discovered that many of them being illiterate, came to church for a reading lesson. The singing leader had a sort of a rehearsal before each hymn, pointing out the characters, the written form of Chinese, one sign for each word, one by one. They all sang loudly and enthusiastically, 
Then the Bible woman gave the teaching in Cantonese. But I could not understand a word of it at this stage, but I felt that I shared in the worship. Among the crowd of Chinese faces on my debut night, one woman stuck out remarkably. She was an elderly vegetable seller. She had a deeply lined face with her hair combed straight back and a large circular comb stuck on her head. She had only two teeth, which showed prominently since she was always smiling. She came up and tugged me by the sleeve enthusiastically. Beside her was her half-blind husband, so she pulled him along, too. She chatted on, beaming at me and tugging, till I asked someone to translate what she was saying. It was, See you next week. See you next week. I wanted to tell her that I could not come every week. It was a long journey across the harbor and through Kunlaw to the walled city for a Sunday evening. It meant that I got back late. That was not good, as I had to get up very early the next morning to teach. But then I found that I could not possibly say all of that to her. She would only understand that I was there or I was not. So I decided that for her sake, I would be there every week. By now, I had a regular job teaching in a primary school in the morning, which I held for six months. Helping Auntie Donnie three afternoons a week in her primary school, playing for the Sunday service and arranging music programs for the various welfare organizations. This filled up my time. I'd been offered a superb job teaching music by a prestigious boarding school at the other end of the island. They additionally offered to refund my fare out, but it was clear I could not combine teaching there with my work in the walled city. I don't find that I'm very good at guidance, but on this occasion, I'd been reading a verse in the Bible that said, for he was looking for the city which had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. As I read the verse, I felt quite sure that I should carry on teaching inside the walled city. The second time I went into the walled city, I had this wonderful feeling inside like the thrill you get on your birthday. I found myself wondering why I was so happy, and the next time I went into the walled city I had exactly the same sensation. This was not reasonable. Of all the revolting places in the world, this was it. And yet nearly every time I was in that underground city over the next dozen years, I was to feel the same joy. I had caught a glimpse of it at confirmation, and again, when I had really accepted Jesus into my life, and now to find it in this profane place? There's a drug addict, said Auntie Donnie, as we walked down the street to her school one morning. I had no idea at that stage what being a drug addict meant. Did he jump at you, or steal your watch, or throw fits? He was a pathetic-looking man, slowly sorting through a pile of waste, item by item, to see if there was anything of value. He seemed very ill. 
His face was waxy, and he looked more like a 70-year-old than a 35-year-old. He wore a soiled t-shirt, a pair of cotton shorts, and battered plastic sandals. Most Chinese people keep themselves meticulously clean, but Mr. Fung was filthy. His teeth were brown and broken, and his fingernails were disgusting. His rough crew cut, a gray shadow over his skull, was a sure sign that he had recently come out of prison. For Mr. Fung, though, prison was somewhere to sleep, a place with regular meals, which was more comfortable than his present existence, sleeping in the streets and eating scraps collected at restaurant doors. But food and sleep were not important to Mr. Fung. He lived to chase the dragon. This Chinese way of drug-taking has a magic ritual all its own, a sort of devilish liturgy that is sacred. Once inside a drug den, addicts would take a piece of silver tinfoil. On it, they would place the small, sand-colored grains of heroin. After heating the foil with a slow-burning spill of screwed-up toilet paper, the heroin would gradually melt into a dark the heroin would gradually melt into a dark brown treacle. The addicts would then put the outer casing of a matchbox into their mouth to act as a funnel through which to inhale the fumes. They would keep the pool of treacle moving from one end of the silver foil to the other, following it with their mouth. This is chasing the dragon. Mr. Fung never chased the dragon in public, but in drug dens or lavatories. It was a full nine months before I actually saw it for myself. And I soon discovered that not all drug takers looked like Mr. Fung. Some were very well dressed. They regarded their neat appearance as evidence that they were not enslaved to the dragon. As I was going into the city, quite frequently I saw Mr. Fung. I wondered, should I learn to say, good morning, how are you, or do you have a problem? In any case, I could not understand his reply, even had he confided in me. I wondered whether I should do something about him and others like him. I hoped someone was doing something. Prostitution, unlike drug abuse, was seldom concealed. The first prostitute I met used dark mauve lipstick and mauve nail varnish, a macabre combination with her thin gray face and emaciated body. She spent her whole life squatting in a street so narrow that the sewer tunnel ran by her heels. I never saw her in any other position. When she ate, she remained squatting there with her rice bowl and her chopsticks waiting for customers. Farther down, other women sat on orange boxes, and one even had a chair. It was hard to tell their ages, because most of them were drug addicts, too. The score marks on the back of their hands showed that they were mainlining, directly injecting heroin into the veins. Day after day, I walked past them and could not tell whether they were asleep or awake. They nodded all day showing the yellow of their eyes in a heroin haze. One day, I tried touching the little one. I had learned to say, 
Jesus loves you in Chinese, and my heart went out to her. But she cringed away from me. Looking at the expression on her face, I suddenly realized that she was feeling sorry for me because she thought I had made a mistake. She seemed to be saying, You're a good girl and shouldn't be talking to the likes of us. You're a nice Christian, dear. Maybe you don't know who we are. She put up the barrier, and I did not know how to cross it. She was embarrassed that a clean girl had made an error and touched a dirty one. Some of the older prostitutes were clearly involved in procuring. As men came out of the blue film theater, these mamasans would literally pull them in. You could hear them saying, she's very young and very cheap, as they pushed them up the wooden flight of steps. Compared with the prices charged in other places by the more glamorous Susie Wongs, these prostitutes were cheap indeed at five Hong Kong dollars each, which was less than one U.S. dollar at the time. Not, of course, that the girls were allowed to keep all this money. Most prostitutes were controlled by triad gangs, and these brothels were only allowed to operate by the gang controlling that area. The triads also supplied the young girls. There were two girls I saw occasionally as I taught percussion band next to their room. One was a cripple and the other was mentally retarded. They were both prisoners. They never went anywhere without a mama-san accompanying them. They were visited up to three times an hour and I reckoned they might be dead of disease by the time they were 20 or so. Later, an English-speaking triad member explained how these two girls, and others like them, would have been introduced to the trade. A group of young men would hold a party and invite girls along. Some of them had been warned about what might happen. Others were innocent victims. At the party, the new girls would be seduced. If they resisted, they were sometimes forcibly raped. Usually, each member of the gang would take his girl off with him and stay with her for a few days. When the girl was attached to him and thoroughly accustomed to sex, he signed her over to a brothel. One girl could bring in enough money to support several men. Other girls became prostitutes because their parents could not afford to feed and clothe them. One mother told me, It wasn't really selling my daughter, you know. My husband left me, and as there was no social security payments in Hong Kong, I had nothing to live on. I couldn't afford to raise my baby myself, so I gave her to this woman who wanted a child and she gave me 100 Hong Kong dollars lucky money. It was just lucky money. Of course, this woman knew what she was doing. She was selling her daughter into prostitution for at least her teenage years. After that, most former child prostitutes escaped from their owners and made careers of their own, practicing the only trade they knew. Child prostitutes could start their careers as early as nine years old. Respectable people thought of the girls as the scum of the earth, 
but I knew that it was only by the grace of God that I had been born in a different place. I tried to work out how I could reach girls like these, guarded as they were. Eventually, I shelved the problem by hoping one day to find a concerned man who would pay the hourly rate but share the good news of Christ in that time. Maybe he and I could work out a plan of escape if any of the girls wanted to get out. You know, I listen to this and it just breaks my heart. And what astonishes me is that this woman is still in Hong Kong. Why didn't she get out of there? Why didn't she get on a boat and go home to her nice English her nice English school where she could teach and make money? But she didn't leave. Do you understand? We only have one life to live. That's all. We go through one time and then we face the judgment. And this dear woman has gone to Hong Kong and Jackie is not leaving. She's staying there. She's laying her life down and now as we shared earlier, she's been there for more than 50 years. She laid her life down for Jesus Christ. What are you doing with your life? Have you heard the word of God? Have you sought the word of God? Have you eagerly cried out to God and said, What would you have me do with this life you've given me? It's not mine. It's yours, Jesus. What are you doing with the life Jesus has given you? Have you laid it down for the gospel? Are you reaching the lost? She's reaching for the lowest of the low in the walled city of Hong Kong. She could not have gone to a more desperate or more dark place. You take a city like San Francisco. They have banned plastic straws. They think that that's important to ban plastic straws while their streets are littered with plastic to inject heroin, syringes. Somehow the heroin syringes are less important to them than the, than the straws. It's this kind of insanity that infects the wicked. And it's coming more and more in America. You think there's no prostitution in Washington? You think there's no prostitution in in Woodbridge? A friend of mine said, did you know there's a house of prostitution in such and such a place in Woodbridge? I said, I wasn't aware of that. He said, go park outside and just watch what happens. And I went and parked. And their men, person after person, went in to the house of prostitution. And as I sat there, 
a Christian man, a school teacher, entered that house of prostitution. I was shocked. I was, I was scandalized. Here's a Christian man, so-called, walking into a house of prostitution, and I'm ministering in this city, and I was not even aware there was a house of prostitution in Woodbridge, Virginia. Somehow I closed my eyes to the reality of the wickedness that was flowing all around me. I later had to sit with that man and tell him what I'd seen and listen to his excuses, finally seeing his tears, finally helping him to find a way out. This story, Alexandra, breaks my heart. How do you react to all this? It certainly makes me want to cry, but it's true that while today the walled city has been torn down since this was written, this is still happening. It's happening all over the world with young boys, with young girls. And I recently learned that Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. have the highest human and sex trafficking in the country. Uh, this is an issue with the border down south, is that there is a lot of human and sex trafficking happening across that border. And people are lied to about what kind of work they'll be doing. They arrive and find that they have been sold into slavery and they have no way out. They can't speak the language. They're afraid. So this is a very real need for us today. And what you'll see as we continue the story is Jackie begins to find answers for how she can reach these people. I feel that many of us today, we're like Jackie is in what we just read, where we say, what can I possibly do to help these people? But what we'll find is that God did empower her and guide her. And I pray that he will do the same with me and with you, as there's just such great need right in our midst. And we are in such desperate need of the power and teaching of the Holy Spirit so that we can actually help and save these people, not only their souls, but just these desperate, inhumane conditions. Jesus came not just to save our soul, but to save us completely, to save us from every kind of oppression, from bondage, from abuse. And frankly, some of you, some of you who are listening to this broadcast today are caught in drug addiction or you're caught in fornication or you're caught in some other wickedness or you may even be caught in prostitution or you may be caught in bitterness you may be caught in anger and rage and the peace of Jesus doesn't dwell in your heart and you've never totally given yourself over to the Lord Jesus. You're still 
walking in your flesh. I pray that as we share this story with you, you will determine in your heart that you will give yourself utterly and completely to Jesus Christ and receive the joy and the excitement and the power to live a holy and godly life, winning others to Jesus Christ. He died for you. He died for people in this city hidden in the filth and darkness. He died for the people of Washington, D.C. He died for you. So I'm very concerned for you today. I pray you'll continue listening. Next week we will begin again the story of darkness, the city of darkness, sharing what the Holy Spirit began to say. And then you'll watch as not only does she begin to work in that wicked place, but finally God grants to her the baptism of the Holy Spirit and everything changes. Well, we're out of time for today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. And I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. You can write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. The address again is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And visit our webpage. God bless you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.